Hello, and welcome to Oppo Research, the podcast about the sins and scandals of your least favorite politicians, brought to you by Discourse Blog. I'm Jack Merkinson, and this is not actually the start of today's episode. We recorded today's episode a few weeks ago, and it was all ready to go, and then the subject of our episode, Dianne Feinstein, died. Yes, I know. Awkward. So... This presented us with something of a dilemma. Should we scrap the whole episode in light of Feinstein no longer being with us, or should we just let you hear it anyway? As you can probably tell since you're listening to this, we decided to let you hear it anyway. That's because Dianne Feinstein was very important in politics for a very long time, and she led a life that we think is worth talking about. And also, we worked very hard on this episode, and we didn't want to just dump it all in the trash. So as you listen to this conversation, which is between myself and the one and only Catherine Krieger talking about Dianne Feinstein, just remember, if you think anything sounds off, uh, it's because we were talking about someone who was alive when we recorded it. So keep that in mind. I think you will enjoy the episode no matter what. So without further ado, here is Oppo Research, Diane Feinstein. Hello, and welcome to Oppo Research, the podcast about the sins and scandals of your least favorite politicians. Brought to you by Discourse Vlog. I'm Catherine Krieger, and I'm joined here by the always delightful, imitable uh, Jack Merkinson. Jack, how are you doing? I am doing great, Catherine. I am very excited that I'm talking to you. The feeling is mutual. Oh, thank you. Our politician of the week is Diane Feinstein. And Jack, you and uh, Diane have a bit of a kind of overlap in your personal backgrounds. Uh, You want to tell the audience a little bit about, uh, you know, why you're kind of in the guest role this week and I'm stepping into the host chair? Sure. It's true. We are both Jews. (laughs) (laughs) We share that. We share that. I meant in other ways, but, you know. Um, but no, so I am from San Francisco, born and raised, and Diane Feinstein, apart from being another person born in San Francisco, way back in 1933, you might not imagine it, folks, to look at her now, but she's pretty old. She's probably one of the three or four most important people in terms of shaping the place that I come from over the past 50 years. And she has been very powerful nationally as well. And now she's become the embodiment of this very decrepit political class that refuses to get off the stage. So she's been a big deal in many different ways over the last nearly 60 years in public life. So I think that she's a perfect person for us to be talking about. And also she's had an incredibly tumultuous, dramatic political career, basically from the moment that she started. In a lot of ways, tracking the history of San Francisco itself, right? Yes, exactly. She's been either like a counterpoint to some of the sort of revolutions that have convulsed San Francisco 
and a representative of the establishment class trying to hold those revolutions back with great success, I would honestly say, for the most part. Or she's been there, you know, with her comrades in the streets, just waving the red flag. That's right. When you think Dianne Feinstein, you think hardcore commie. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, to dive in here, can you take me a little bit through, impossible to imagine, but young Diane's life? I can. So she is born on June 23rd, 1933. Her father is a second generation San Franciscan. So she goes way, way back. And he is a big time surgeon. He's the first Jewish professor at the University of California, San Francisco, which is one of the top medical schools in the country. Her mother is described by many different sources as this sort of very glamorous, but very disturbed person. She's a Russian emigre. She is apparently the daughter of a czarist general who was forced to flee Russia when the communists came in. And by all accounts, including Dianne Feinstein's accounts in later life, she has very severe mental issues. She reportedly once chased Dianne around their dining room with a knife Diane Feinstein often found herself locked out of their house for no reason. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, she apparently witnessed her mother try to drown one of her sisters in their bathtub. Um, Yikes. You know, so like very extreme, bad, disturbing, abusive behavior. And apparently they eventually figured out that she had possibly been suffering from encephalitis and that parts of her brain had literally atrophied in early life. So there was like a lot going on with her mother. Diane Feinstein is raised in this rather sort of tumultuous life. She is sent to one of the top Catholic schools in the city because her mother is a Catholic. And she apparently, by all accounts, loves the discipline that you get when hanging around with a bunch of nuns. Put a real pin in that for what's <laughs> to come in this episode. Yeah, exactly. A Jewish woman drawn to the punishments and our law and order of the Catholic Church. Yeah, and she talks in a lot of interviews like, I love Judaism and I love Catholicism. Like, I love everything. Why anyone would say the second part in this day and age <laughs> is lost on me, but continue, Jack. Well, you know, I think by this point we know that Dianne Feinstein's not exactly the master of saying the right thing. Apparently, this is according to the book Season of the Witch by David Talbot, which is a history of San Francisco in the 60s and 70s. He says, quote, sometimes she would slip into a nun's habit when the sisters weren't looking. That's how much she loved the world of the nuns, which to me is a little strange, but I suppose don't kink shame or whatever. Don't Catholic shame, a rule yeah. I've already broken. Sorry yeah. to our, I'm sure, numerous Catholic listeners. Right. Sorry to all of um, you Pope lovers out there. And at the same time, her uncle Morris Goldman is this big sort of player in local democratic politics. And he is the one who sort of introduces her to the political world. He takes her when she's only 12 years old to a meeting of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, which is the equivalent of the city council in San Francisco. She 
repeatedly says in interviews the hilarious fact that he liked to call it the board of stupid visors, which I guess she finds extremely funny. Oh, and then after Catholic school, she goes to Stanford. She gets a history degree and a concentration in political science. And then when she's very young, she's only 23, she marries her first husband in 1956, which by all accounts is a way for her to like escape the insanity awaiting her back at home and carve out a new identity for herself. That's the promise of marriage. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I suppose in 1956, <laughs> like time. you're doing what you can, I guess. They have a kid together, which is her only biological kid named Catherine. Um, no relation. You are not Diane Feinstein's kid. We will stress that. Um, as far as we know. She has three stepdaughters later on in her life, but only one biological kid. Their marriage does not last. They divorce after only three years. He apparently wants her to stay at home. She absolutely does not. What she really wants to do is get into politics. So she gets accepted to this thing in San Francisco called the Coro Foundation, which is basically this weird, like shadowy group run by some rich people that exists to like train future government do-gooder bigwig types, basically like some weird like placement service for people to get into California politics. So she goes to this, she's getting connections, and then she has been very into like criminal justice issues, and she sends a paper she writes on criminal justice to the governor of California at the time, Pat Brown, and is like, would you get me a job? This is according to a New York Times profile from the 70s. And he's like, sure, and gives her this job. And so she gets a spot on the women's parole board in California. I guess at the time they had a different parole board for women. And so now at just 28, she becomes the youngest member in the history of this board. And she is the one helping make decisions about which women in California state prisons get released and which don't. Not for nothing, I would prefer to take my chances in front of the all-male parole board. <laughs> Do you mean as opposed to the one that Diane Feinstein was on? Yeah, least of all because Diane Feinstein was on it. But, you know, women are very harsh to each other. Anticipating something Diane herself will say in about 10 years. In 1962, she marries her second husband, who's a doctor named Bert Feinstein. They settle down in Pacific Heights, which is one of the two or three fanciest neighborhoods in San Francisco. You go there and it's these huge mansions everywhere. So she is like carved out a place for herself. Not unlike the place that like Nancy Pelosi in a few decades will carve out as well as like part of this very moneyed, very sort of elite side of the San Francisco Democratic political scene. The budding San Francisco kind of political aristocracy. Yes, exactly. So she gets appointed by the mayor to a bunch of different committees. And then in... 1969, she decides to run for a seat on the Board of Supervisors. She's sort of like out of nowhere, but she has a lot of connections and she has a lot of money, which from what I've read, she vastly outspends the rest of the competition. And she pitches herself as like a definite sort of liberal, but also 
She's very prim and proper. Every profile of her is talking about this beautiful, glamorous woman who's trying to be a politician. There's this video that I watched. I just want you to take a, a, a very short peek at this to see what she is wearing and how she is speaking. Oh, yeah. She's dressed in, uh, you know, like a wool suit, you know, like Nancy Reagan red. She's wearing two strings of pearls. And then I guess for the time, she's wearing like a black beret over her, what I would now call old lady beauty shop curls, probably fashionable for the time and wearing a campaign button. The jaunty beret. It's this very like prim and proper image at a time when San Francisco is one of the major epicenters of the counterculture in the entire universe. So she's really setting herself up in contrast to a lot of the currents that are running through the city at the time. But she wins. And not only does she win, she comes in first out of all the candidates running. And at the time, it's citywide elections. So you vote and whoever gets like the top five results or whatever becomes a supervisor. So she comes in first and thus becomes the president of the board. She's the first woman to be the president of the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. Diane Feinstein is the kind of woman many ladies could dislike if she wasn't so appealing. She does everything well. She is bright, poised, attractive, and capable. Mrs. Feinstein, how do you feel about being a woman involved in politics? Do you think that that's an asset or a liability? Do you think it's a factor perhaps in your victory or in your effectiveness? Well, I think it's an asset, actually. I, I think if a woman is able to retain her femininity, uh, if she's able to use it with taste and wisely, uh, if she also has a good brain and common sense and uses these ingredients as well, I think she can be enormously effective. And are there any constituencies that she was particularly reliant upon in winning that first big election? Well, so one of the really smart and pretty bold, actually, moves that she makes is that she very consciously goes after the gay vote in San Francisco. And in 1969, there's a growing, increasingly vocal gay population in San Francisco, but it's not really until the 70s that you reach the heights of the gay political movement and the gay liberation movement. So it's very early for a mainstream politician to be not only identifying the gay vote as one that can become a reliable sort of constituency, but also that is one that you should actively reach out to and that you will not be penalized by the rest of the city for reaching out to. And in his book about Harvey Milk, Randy Schiltz, who's a very famous gay journalist from the 70s and 80s, he writes that as far as he is concerned, the gay vote is the thing that puts Dianne Feinstein over the top in this race. It's very prescient of her and not without its risks, but it pays off. And it begins this very complicated relationship that she has with the queer community in San Francisco over the next 20 to 30 years. We're going to dive into that more in our next section. I just want to take a really quick break. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to Apple Research, brought to you by Discourse Blog. 
The Discourse Blog is a worker-owned leftist politics and culture site. We write about uprisings, the woeful democratic establishment, the conservative death cult, bad journalism, bad bosses, workers, online nonsense, and naturally, the discourse. For a limited time, Oppo research listeners can get 20% off an annual subscription to Discourse Blog by going to discourseblog.com research. Subscribing gives you access to all our posts, and you can hear new episodes of Oppo Research a week early with no ads. Once again, that's discourseblog.com slash research for 20% off annual subscriptions and early access to new episodes of Oppo Research. Thanks for listening. We're back, Jack. As you were alluding to just now, Diane Feinstein would go on to have a fairly tortured relationship. I'm using the word tortured. I'm sure you'd choose another one with the gay community in San Francisco. I think that's about right. In this next section, uh, it's a moment in San Francisco where there's a lot going on. So can you tell us a little bit more, you know, setting the stage for this next phase in Diane's political career in San Francisco? Yeah, so she gains political power at a moment where the amount of sort of change and tumult and upheaval in San Francisco really cannot be understated. Between 1969, when she comes onto the Board of Supervisors, and 1978, when she becomes the mayor, you have the sort of last remnants of the hippie movement, which is centered around San Francisco and completely changed the entire culture. And empowered the CIA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and empowered the CIA and some of the most annoying people in the universe. You have the sexual revolution, the queer liberation movement, the women's liberation movement, the black liberation movement. All of these things are happening at the same time. And San Francisco has become within a period of like 15 to 20 years, it's transformed from this relatively staid Republican town to not only like this sort of center of democratic politics, but this national center of really sort of revolutionary currents running through politics and culture. And during the time she's on the Board of Supervisors, you have the People's Temple, which is headquartered in San Francisco and which courts politicians very deeply. She has a meeting with Jim Jones, as does basically... turned out okay there, right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the People's Temple is still around and we love all the great work that they do. You know, you have Alcatraz occupied by Native Americans for 19 months in 1969. You have the Zodiac Killer running around in San Francisco. You have like the rise of the Latino movement, which becomes a huge part of the fabric of the city. Patty Hearst, uh, you know, gets kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army and then emerges in a San Francisco bank on camera with a machine gun or whatever. You have all of this wild shit happening. And then on top of all of that, you have what really becomes one of the main sort of battles in San Francisco that still exists to this day, which is these huge fights over land development, how much to give away to big business. And at this time, it's known by the phrase Manhattanization. So there's all these people in San Francisco who are incredibly worried that the city's going to give over the entire city to big real estate companies. They're going to build these giant high rises and what was a relatively low-key city is all of a sudden going to become the Manhattan 
of the West. And so politics really divides in a lot of ways down the line of like, are you for the big business and for the big developers or against them? You know, amid San Francisco being ground zero for cultural, political tumults, all of these movements, these uprisings, where is Diane in all of this? I'm sure she's right there on the front lines, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whenever she's on the front lines, it is to like spy on the front lines, basically. There are literally stories about Diane Feinstein putting on a blonde wig and camping out on the street in one of the more rundown parts of San Francisco just to like see what's going on. And so she sets herself up at a cautious distance from most of these things. She is always very like law and order. But at the beginning of her career, she's also like into the environment. She paints herself as like a good government reformer. But she also gets this image as this sort of very like uptight contrast to all of the madness that was going on around her. She is not antagonistic in a lot of ways to some of these groups. Like for instance, she is involved in co-writing a bill that bans city contractors from discriminating against gay people, tending to that very important constituency. But At the same time, she wonders aloud to one of the people who she's talking to about the bill. She says, does this mean that contractors have to hire men who wear dresses? So she's like weirded out and befuddled by the change happening around her, but also being relatively shrewd about where she situates herself within that change. And so she like runs left on some things runs like hard to the right on crime and what you might call vice in the city. She wages a big campaign against the growing like porn industry in the city. There's this very weird section from Season of the Witch in which she is pictured at the Glide Memorial Church, which is a big church in San Francisco in the Tenderloin, which is like the most troubled part of the city. And she is, quote, lecturing the downtrodden worshipers about the importance of good hygiene and hard work. Good citizens, she enlightened them, are people who keep themselves clean. That's weird shit to be saying to people in public, especially like poor people who have absolutely no opportunities. She's well, how like, are you going to distinguish yourself from the literally unwashed masses if not saying weird things like that? That's right. And not telling them like, you know what you should do? Please take a shower. I don't like the smell of you. She's had a very quick and meteoric rise and she decides to try to go even higher by running for mayor. She really starts running for mayor a lot. So she runs in 1971, which is, you know, just like two years after she is first elected by anybody. She's running against the incumbent, Joe Alioto, who is like a very old school machine politician, part of his own San Francisco political dynasty that lasts for a long time. And she comes in third. The people are not buying what she is selling. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times in 1972, she ascribes the loss partially to what she calls the petty jealousies Mm. that she says women have. And she says, quote, they suspect and mistrust one another. This is one of our greatest detriments as females. Well, they can't all be wrong. (laughs) In my experience, you can always trust someone who calls women females. 
And then she runs again in 1975. Aliotto's term limited by this point, so it's an open race. The first time Diane Feinstein ran for mayor, she finished a disappointing third, but that was 1971. Now she's back with nearly five years of the Board of Supervisors behind her and ready to try again on a strong field of candidates for Joe Aliotto's job. Many have asked the question, why do I want to be mayor? And the answer is a simple one, that my strongest talent is administration. As supervisor, by charter restriction, I cannot give direction to city departments. As mayor, I can and will. And again, she comes in third. And between 1971 and 1975, you can track the sort of rightward move of her politics. Like in 1971, she's liberal enough that the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which is, you know, sort of the village voice of San Francisco and is like a mainstay of liberal left politics in the city, expresses support for her candidacy and says she's doing great work on tax reform, environmental reform, says like she's she would be the best person to be the mayor. By 1975, things have changed and she has cemented her position on the right of the political spectrum and especially her position as someone who is very favorable to business interests and downtown interests. And this time, the Bay Guardian opposes her and supports George Moscone, who's a big liberal and whose election is like this big sort of liberal moment in the city. And the Guardian calls her a tool of downtown corporate power who is allied to anti-labor forces in the city. So she's clearly, between 1971 and 1975, made some real enemies, basically, on the left. Downtown corporate power. You you hate to see an all-weekly using uh, tired anti-Semitic tropes like that. <laughs> Yes, they say they they all they always uh, put Jew in parentheses. Diane Feinstein, Jew, downtown corporate power, Jewish. We'll see if we'll see if the uh, censors on our editing team <laughs> allow that one through. Yeah, downtown corporate power, parentheses derogatory, parentheses Jewish, um, and. <laughs> And then in 1976, San Francisco institutes district-wide elections, so it breaks the city up into districts rather than having people elected to the Board of Supervisors from across the city. And this allows a lot more left-wing people to get on the Board of Supervisors because they're only running in certain neighborhoods. And one of these people who gets elected is, of course, Harvey Milk, who becomes the first openly gay elected official in the United States. And so this sort of move puts her even more to the right in terms of San Francisco politics. Harvey Milk immediately sets himself up as an antagonist to Dianne Feinstein, among other things. He votes against her to become the board president. And then she wins that vote six to five. And then someone says, okay, now that she's won, as a courtesy to her, we should do a second vote that's unanimous to be nice. And Harvey Milk says, absolutely not, and blocks them from doing a unanimous vote. So he's like against her from the jump. And there are also kind of some, let's say, culture differences between Harvey Milk and Feinstein. Yes, exactly. She is definitely, as I said before, politically friendly and personally friendly with some queer people, 
but also is like, you people are strange and can you please reel it in? Harvey Milk is quoted in the Randy Schultz book as saying, quote, what I do is I leave my door open when I'm on the phone. And when I know that Diane or Quentin Cop, another sort of right wing politician is outside, I yell real loud, shit, goddammit, fuck. It bugs the shit out of them. She's not even someone who you can swear around, apparently, without it becoming a problem. And he really sort of becomes a thorn in her side. And she sets herself up as a sort of role that you will recognize from down the years. The moderate, pragmatic realist who's like all about actually getting things done and not grandstanding and blah, 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 blah. And the forces that have put him in power are the wild-eyed activist rabble, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the big things he does is he writes an anti-discrimination bill, basically like applying the Civil Rights Act to San Francisco for queer people. And she eventually votes for it because I think she sees that the gay vote is now way more powerful than it was back in 1969. And it's powerful enough that she doesn't want to be on the wrong side of it. But she does it with some hesitancy. And this is also from Randy Schiltz. He says, quote, Supervisor Feinstein, whose interest with the gay leather scene bordered on obsession, openly wondered if the bill would make landlords rent to S&M cultists. One of the uncomfortable parts of San Francisco's liberalism has been the encouragement of sadism and masochism, she said. The gay community is going to have to face it. There's a need to set some standards. The right of an individual to live his lifestyle in a way he or she chooses can become offensive. Supervisor Feinstein said at the time that, uh, that she felt uh, convinced it was the right thing to do, but she expressed great concern that gays uh, should uh, exhibit some sort of self-control right. and standards. Every group has criminals and myths. We do not judge those groups by the criminal element. And to just apply that standard to one group is offensive. And she was offensive on those remarks. Diane seems to have trouble with anything that's not in his proper little neat place and look into a whole record on pornography. And she, she once made a statement that the crime wave in the city is because of the dirty bookstores. And when I asked her how many of the thousands of automobiles stolen each year are a result of the dirty bookstores, you know, people stealing a car to get down there fast, she couldn't answer. She's great to make statements, but without any facts. That's a Democrat for you. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we're looking forward to seeing her being wheeled out at Folsom, the street fair coming up in a few weeks here. So That's right. When you think Folsom Street Fair, I mean, she is quite leathery at this point herself. Um, <laughs> you know, so no, she, she could definitely, she could pass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so at this point, we're now into the late 70s, and her personal life is going through some turmoil. Her husband died of cancer. She then marries this investment banker named Richard Blum. They stay married until his death, I think, last year. And he makes her incredibly wealthy. She's one of the four or five richest members of Congress now. Also has run into some trouble over the years thanks to her stock portfolio, but that's another story. And by 1978, she has run for mayor twice. She's lost twice. She's finding herself perhaps more on the outs with the political zeitgeist. 
And on November 27th, 1978, she returns to City Hall from a three-week vacation and tells reporters that she is not going to run again for supervisor, that she's about to be at the end of her political road. And that very same day, Harvey Milk and George Moscone are murdered by Dan White, at this point, a former member of the Board of Supervisors who had resigned and then tried to come back on the board. And Moscone and Milk had been part of the people telling, saying that he should not return to the board. And Feinstein was one of the people who said she would welcome him back to the board. She's in City Hall when Dan White murders Harvey Milk and George Moscone. She very famously is the person who goes to check if they're dead. She puts her fingers in their bullet wounds to check if they have a pulse. Um, Jesus Christ. And as she is the president of the Board of Supervisors, in San Francisco, when there's a vacancy for mayor, the president of the Board of Supervisors immediately becomes the acting mayor. So on the same day that Diane Feinstein has told reporters, I'm packing it in, she suddenly finds herself the mayor of San Francisco and in circumstances that are just unbelievably tragic and chaotic. She's instantly thrust into the international spotlight. She has to announce the fact that Harvey Milk and George Moscone have been killed on camera, which is a video that becomes an incredibly sort of iconic, terrible moment in San Francisco history. It's probably still the single most famous political moment of her career. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. suspect is supervisor dan white and then all of a sudden she is in charge of the city just when it is falling apart that's a perfect place to take a quick break we'll be right back Welcome back, Diane Feinstein, having her political glow up in the wake of unimaginable tragedy. <laughs> um, she assumes the office of mayor after the deaths of Harvey Milk and George Moscone. What's kind of her first order of business and where does Diane go from there? Obviously, this is a difficult time to become the mayor of a city. And so her, her first immediate job is to like steady the ship let it be known that there's someone actually in charge of things and trying to just calm the city down at this moment of intense trauma, which I think by all accounts, she does relatively skillfully. She throws a bone to Harvey Milk's supporters and his political base by appointing one of his top 
allies named Harry Britt to his vacated seat, which came, I think, as a surprise to most people. They thought she would go a different way. So she's trying to sort of navigate these alliances as she moves forward. But she also pretty quickly carves out a space very firmly to the right of where George Moscone was, which like, I suppose just who she actually is. So she's like, I'm not going to not be my kind of shitty self. Apparently, one of the first things she does at the beginning of her tenure is she enlists the police to crack down on the burgeoning punk scene in San Francisco. There's interviews with these young kids and they're like, all of a sudden, after Dianne Feinstein became the mayor, the cops were everywhere all over us. And they hadn't been before. So like, that's a good sign of where she's trying to take the city. I think her narrative of the city is basically like, everyone thinks like San Francisco is this crazy place. And now it's been subjected to multiple political assassinations. But I know that actually it's much more sensible and wants more order in the world. And I'm going to be that person. We just need like competence and strong authoritative government. And what becomes of Dan White? In May of 1979, so like about six months or so into her tenure as the mayor, Dan White is basically let off the hook for killing Harvey Milk and George Moscone. He's convicted of manslaughter and he's sentenced to just seven years in prison. This is where they invoke the notorious Twinkie defense, that he was like high on junk food and his judgment was clouded. But the obvious sort of undertone of all of this is that there's something understandable about wanting to murder a gay man. Obviously, it's bad, but you can't attribute it to premeditation because the gayness and the junk food just made him crazy. So this kicks off what becomes known as the White Knight Riots. The queer community in San Francisco erupts in outrage. You know, it's this like multi-day rebellion in the city. Approximately 12 um, police cars were burned, at least one police motorcycle and several civilian vehicles. The fire chief estimates that damage at approximately uh, $200,000. I think it's important for everyone in this city to know uh, that we're not going to continue uh, to tolerate this. Uh, The police exercised um, considerable restraint and tomorrow, I hope for all of us, will be a different day. Feinstein later says that she had wanted the cops to crack down more on the protests than they did. But she's like, oh, the cops told me that wasn't going to happen. She later fires the chief of police, who is the person who apparently has been making these decisions against her. Dan White only serves five years in prison. Then he dies by suicide in 1986. She does not set herself up on the side of the people who were outraged by what happened there. Then in November 1979, in a real example of the very sort of back and forth complicated relationship she has with the gay community in the city, she runs for a full term as mayor and she beats a more conservative opponent in a runoff. And one of the things that puts her over the top is the gay vote. Um, She also leans on the black community in San Francisco. And it's basically like a lesser of two evils sort of thing. Her rival, the aforementioned Quentin Cop, is seen as more hostile to gay people. And so fresh from wanting the police to crack down on queer people, outraged because the most high profile killer of a gay person, probably in the history 
of America up to that point has been slapped on the wrist, she then is turning around and soliciting their votes. So she wins not too close, but not too wide a win. But then she has her own mandate and she can set about changing San Francisco as she wishes. And what kind of a mayor of San Francisco is she? So she is, I would say, the kind of mayor that San Francisco has had for most of its recent history, which I suppose you could call her like uh, the model that a lot of these mayors are working off of. Socially liberal, for the most part. They will all go on to be more socially liberal, I think, than she is now because 40 years have passed. Terrible on issues like housing and homelessness. She vetoes this very crucial rent control legislation that would have capped the rents on units when they become vacant, you know, so that you can't say, oh, well, now it's $5,000 a month instead of what it was when these people were living there. She prevents a lot of housing being built for the unhoused population in San Francisco, which, as everybody knows, the homeless situation in San Francisco has been badly handled forever, and she's a part of that. She's very pro-cop. She's very pro-development. When she cast herself again as this sort of do-gooder who can clean up this dirty town, she like does some weird things. This is from a report in the San Francisco Chronicle. She arrived at fires, pulling hoses, rode herd on bureaucrats, and on one of her inspections through town, saw an inebriated man collapse on a tenderloin sidewalk, jumped out of her car, and began mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. What a story. You know, so it's like that very sort of performative politics. I wouldn't say that there's much similarity between Dianne Feinstein and Eric Adams, but that's sort of like, I'm visible, I'm seen kind of shit. But she has this very clear vision that San Francisco is actually a normal place. There's this interview in 1984 where she says, I want all those dissenters and a lot of them among our own that say, oh, this is the coup capital of the United States to turn around and say, my God, it's a beautiful city. Look at it. And the common thread of like her complicated relationship, tortured relationship, as you said, with the gay community continues. In 1982, she completely betrays queer San Francisco by vetoing a domestic partner rights bill, which would have given queer couples in San Francisco the same kind of rights as any other couples. She says, oh, it's like the legislation is vague, blah, 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 blah. And But like, please. The Senate parliamentarian just won't let me do it. Yeah, exactly. She says something like, I would love to be like showing our lifestyle off to the world, but this isn't the way to do it. Not uncoincidentally, the Roman Catholic Church has made a very big lobbying push against this bill. Um, Mm. Go figure. The nuns that she loves are calling her up, I guess, and saying, Diane, don't do it. We'll give you your very own habit if you uh, kill this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so that leads to this own goal, like blunder that she walks into because she also passes a handgun ban after Harvey Milk and George Moscone get killed. She becomes a big supporter of gun control. She used to carry a pistol around in the olden days, but she stops. She passes a handgun ban, which is eventually declared unlawful by the state, But even after that happens, there's this leftist group called the White Panthers. They're not Nazis. They identify as like communists. And they think that to make people part with their guns is going to put poor people at risk. And so they organize a recall petition to remove her from the mayoralty. And according to Art Agnos, who immediately succeeds her as the mayor and is much to her left, he says the recall was not getting any real traction until Feinstein v 
veto domestic partner legislation that angered the gay community. And so the gay vote is what pushes the recall from like theory into reality. Then she goes on to win it by a big margin because it's like this very random thing and nobody's really into giving the White Panthers what they want. So she sails through that. Then AIDS happens. Uh, San Francisco, along with New York, is obviously one of the two epicenters of AIDS in the United States. In retrospect, you know, reading around, I think she generally gets decent marks for her response to AIDS, especially like in comparison to Ed Koch here in New York, who's seen as much more intransigent, much more unwilling to give funding and things like that. She does run into controversy because she is a big proponent of shutting the city's bathhouses down. And there's a lot of people in the queer community who want them to be kept open, more regulated. You know, you have to practice safe sex, et cetera. But that these are places of community and networking that can be used as a sort of method of harm reduction. She opposes it. Her health commissioner eventually declares them shut down. So that's like a big flashpoint as well. But she is seen as one of the better people on AIDS within the context of basically every elected official being terrible. Around this time, she also successfully lobbies for San Francisco to become the site of the 1984 Democratic Convention. And Walter Mondale says that he wants to have a woman be the vice president. She becomes basically like one of the top two contenders for that, along with Geraldine Ferraro. I've had an opportunity now to be the, the first woman and the first mayor to be asked to go through an interview process. And I view that as a major opening of a door and something that's very important to do. Ferraro obviously wins, but she's gotten a taste of what it might be like to move up the political ladder. Then she serves out her term and she leaves in, I think, 1988. Then in 1990, she runs for governor. And this is when she really sort of solidifies into the Dianne Feinstein that we would sort of recognize right now. She wins the primary in part by touting her support for the death penalty. She very deliberately makes a speech at a, like a Democratic gathering being like, I'm for the death penalty and I don't care who knows it, essentially, basically so that the audience will boo her, which it does. When she says her primary opponent is soft on the death penalty. And she also, I didn't, I did not know this until doing this research, but like it's crazy. She uses the footage of herself announcing the murder of George Moscone and Harvey Mill, which mm. is like this unbelievably harrowing moment in the life of the city. She uses it as part of an ad campaign for her gubernatorial run. And the script, it's like exactly as grossly triangulating as you would think. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. Forged from tragedy, her leadership brought San Francisco together. Tough and caring, she pushed for daycare, cracked down on toxics, added police and cut crime 20%. Named the nation's most effective mayor and always pro-choice. She's the only Democrat for governor for the death penalty. She's Diane Feinstein. I love to be pro-choice and uh, pro-death penalty. Right, right. Tough and caring. And how does that, uh, how's that race turn out for her? Not so well. She loses the race to the Republican senator from California, Pete Wilson. 
And it's a very closely fought, bitterly fought race, but he squeaks it out past her. You know, it's like, well, what is she going to do after that? But when Pete Wilson leaves the Senate to become the governor, he has the rest of his term that needs to be filled. And so in 1992, she runs on basically the same lines as she ran for governor. And this time she wins and she becomes a senator. Feinstein entering her final form. I just want to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Diane Feinstein in the Senate. Thank you for listening to Oppo Research, brought to you by Discourse Blog. For a limited time, Oppo Research listeners can get 20% off an annual subscription to Discourse Blog by going to discourseblog.com slash research. Subscribing gives you access to all our posts, and you can hear new episodes of Oppo Research a week early with no ads. Once again, that's discourseblog.com slash research for 20% off annual subscriptions and early access to new episodes of Oppo Research. Thanks for listening. All right, and we're back to Senator Dianne Feinstein. Jack, tell us a little bit more about the form she cuts once she reaches the Senate, which is her highest perch yet and probably her highest perch period. Yeah, I- I'm not quite sure she's going to be seeking wider political office at this point. Uh, I hear rumblings that she could be running for president. Let's be real. She probably thinks she's running for president at oh, this moment. Yeah. Or that she is the president. Who knows what's going on in there? A real ignoble end. But yeah, so. So she gets in in 1992. It's famously called the Year of the Woman because a bunch of women get elected to the Senate. And then she has been there ever since as the senior senator from California. And really, like I said earlier, her political profile by this point is pretty much like locked in and she doesn't really move off of that. Generally liberal on social issues, very hawkish on foreign policy and crime. She votes for the Iraq War, among other things. She's big on the crime bill, et cetera, et cetera. Very business friendly. In an article, the Chronicle notes that she has made it a point to court the agricultural lobby in California and give them whatever they want, even though it's terrible for the environment. Really likes to portray herself as like this bipartisan, just like get it done problem solver. You know, she votes for the Bush tax cuts. She is like very down the line on foreign policy, but she's also, like she said, pro-death penalty, but always pro-choice, that kind of thing. Her big thing in the 90s is the assault weapons ban, which she passes in 1994, which is obviously a good piece of legislation. It's only set to last for 10 years and it sunsets 10 years later and we know what happened after that. She makes it a point to really stay involved in San Francisco politics. Like when I was growing up, you could not get a leaflet, a political ad or anything like that without Dianne Feinstein noting which person she was backing. It is invariably the more right wing, more pro-business, more pro hand over the city to rich people candidate, since that's the kind of mayor that she was. Lovely. And she also makes two incredibly disgusting interventions into local San Francisco politics. They both happen around the same time. 
The first happens after a cop is killed, and Kamala Harris, uh, you may have heard of her, is the city's DA at the time, and she has run and won on the principle of opposing the death penalty. And she says that she's not going to seek the death penalty in the case of this cop who's been killed. And so Dianne Feinstein goes to his funeral, and Kamala Harris is there, and she gets up to speak, and she says, this is not only the definition of tragedy, it's the special circumstance called for by the death penalty law. So at his funeral, with Kamala Harris in attendance, she makes a point to basically put a target on Kamala Harris's back for not seeking the death penalty. This is probably the best thing that Kamala Harris has ever done in her political career. She's run away from it ever since. Yes, yes. And Dianne Feinstein is staunchly opposed. And then shortly after that, after the 2004 presidential election, Dianne Feinstein publicly attacks Gavin Newsom, who is then the mayor of San Francisco, for the best thing he's ever done in his political career, which is authorize same-sex marriages within San Francisco. This is from the New York Times. She says, I believe it did energize a very conservative vote. I think it gave them a position to rally around. I'm not casting a value judgment. I'm just saying I do believe that's what happened. That whole issue has been too much, too fast, too soon, and people aren't ready for it. That whole issue. Yeah. Ironically, Dianne Feinstein, and this has been reported in many different places, in 1977, she conducted a lesbian wedding ceremony in her own backyard for some people who she knew. She's gone from, in 1977, being apparently comfortable enough with gay marriage to perform one herself to in 2004 attacking the mayor of the city that she's from for trying to hand this Human right rights. to gay people. Rights for me and my friends, but not for the... Yeah, rights for me like 30 years earlier. So she like carries on in the Senate in 2014 and 2015. She does probably the best thing she's ever done. Um, she is the head of the Intelligence Committee at that point and releases what's known as the Torture Report about the extent of the CIA's torture regime under George Bush. She battles the CIA and the White House very publicly over this. They like basically break into her office and her communications, and she very publicly goes after them for this. That's like, fine, good, glad you did that, Diane. Without prior notification or approval, CIA personnel had conducted a search that was John Brennan's word, of the committee computers at the off-site facility. Based on what Director Brennan has informed us, I have grave concerns that the CIA's search may well have violated the separation of powers principles embodied in the United States Constitution. And... This is about the point, the late 2010s, the, the Diane. Late, the later years. <laughs> yeah, the fader years. When the Diane that we currently know, by which I mean the very, very obviously dementia-plagued skeleton walking around the Capitol building starts to come into view. She's starting to be more at odds with the sort of center of gravity within the Democratic Party in 2018. 
The California Democratic Party declines to endorse her because she's seen as too right wing. This is when she suddenly reverses her stance on the death penalty, which all of a sudden she's like, you know, I don't think it's good. I wonder why she did that. She wins that race, obviously, which is why she's currently still plaguing everyone in the Senate. I suppose maybe she knows that she's there sometimes, I guess. But this is where, like, it all starts to happen. There's that infamous encounter that she has with the little kids who are protesting about climate change. We're like, please, I don't want my planet to be on fire. Yeah, and she's like, I've been doing this a lot longer than you. Grow up! I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. I hear what you're saying, but we're the people who voted you. You're supposed to listen to us. That's your your job. I'm 16. I can't vote. You didn't vote vote for me. Like, that made her look so awful. There's everything she did around Amy Coney Barrett, where she was like, this is the best hearing I've ever been in. Hugs Lindsey Graham. And this is also when all of these reports that she's basically like losing her marbles start to emerge. So like there's a lot of angst around whether she's going to even be competent at the Amy Coney Barrett hearings because it's already been reported in multiple outlets that like she's having memory problems. She doesn't recognize people on and on. This is also around the time when infamously Chuck Schumer has to tell her twice that she can't be the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee because he tells her once and she forgets and he has to tell her again. Senators are like telling anyone who will listen that she keeps forgetting who they are. And like reporting that her staff has been running basically they're the de facto ranking senator from California for years now. Yes. And I saw earlier today There was a Diane out to lunch moment. What happened? Yeah, she apparently forgot that she gave her daughter power of attorney, which like she's been involved in this big sort of estate fight over her late husband. And she's also very clearly not mentally competent. And so she gave her daughter power of attorney. But this is from the San Francisco Chronicle. When Feinstein initially spoke to the Chronicle on Wednesday morning, she said she gave no permission to do anything when asked why her daughter has power of attorney. However, she clarified soon after in a phone call, I've entrusted my daughter to handle those things that I believe she can. And she's very smart. And if it doesn't work, we'll change it. But so far, so good. This is also after she was like gone for months from the Senate. Missing critical votes. Yeah, she got shingles. And then she came back and she was like, what are you talking about? I've been here. And they were like, you've been gone for months. No, I haven't been gone. Okay. Um, you should follow me. I haven't been gone. I've been working. You've been working from home is what you're saying? No, I've been here. Um, I've been voting. Also an incredibly normal country, not a gerontocracy. Uh, right. You know, a, a senator who has authorized, given her daughter power of attorney, is still holding the future of this country in her hands. And there is no way to get her out of there unless she decides that she wants to get out of there. And like, as long as she's able to even like have a staffer jerk her hand up at the right moments to say yes, then they'll keep her just sitting there, clearly losing her mind. So she's not running for re-election, finally. No, they extracted that from her. But she has said that, or you know, someone has said that she's still going to complete 
completes her term. Yes, yes. She or someone who like vaguely answers to the name Diane Feinstein will. Yes, yeah, some, someone who sends an email back in that direction. Yeah, will as of now be serving her term in the Senate. We don't know what's going to happen between now and January 2025. But I think just on an objective level, even if you're someone like me who basically has disliked almost everything that Dianne Feinstein has done in her career over the past 50-odd years, objectively, it is a very ignominious and very humiliating, depressing end to what has just on the basis of all of the offices she has held, all of the stature that she has amassed, all of the power that she has wielded, like has been one of the biggest, most consequential careers in politics in the last few decades. She has been a very big deal politician. And the way that this is ending is evidence that she should have ended it a long time ago, just like all of these other people who are in that situation should have ended it a long time ago. That was, says a lot about her own personal decades-long quest for power and also says plenty about the party around her that is allowing her to continue to wield this consolidated power in, you know, what's like a case of basically elder abuse to anyone with eyes. That's right. I mean, like, it's awful what they're putting her through. As I said, even if you're like not a Dianne Feinstein fan, which... I think you know at this point that we're not. Please give this woman a break. Let her just go back to San Francisco with her many millions of dollars and live out the rest of her days in something like comfort and relaxation. But clearly she also does not want to do that. I think, you know, if you read reports on her and profiles of her these days, basically they say she has not had a life other than politics, by which I mean she doesn't take vacation. She doesn't have a social life beyond politics. She doesn't have that many interests beyond politics. This is her identity and clearly she does not want to give that up, even though equally clearly she like barely knows what that identity is anymore. So to the extent that it was coherent ever. Exactly. So hopefully, like, someone sees sense and there's some mechanism to get her out. But barring that and barring her having some health crisis, we are still going to have her around until January 2025, by which time she will be almost 92 years old. And who knows what state she will be in by then. But this is American politics. This is the hand that we're dealt. That is a perfect place to draw things to a close. Jack, thank you so much for taking us so in-depth into the life and times of Dianne Feinstein. Catherine, thank you so much for indulging that torrent of words that I just had to throw at you. The pleasure was all, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you for listening to Oppo Research, brought to you by Discourse Blog. Our producer is Alex Chan. Our editor and art director is Sam Grosso. I'm your temporary host, Catherine Krieger. And I'm your host, Jack Merkinson. New episodes of Oppo Research drop Fridays, and you can listen to every episode at discourseblog.com, on the Substack app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to listen to new episodes early? If you subscribe to Discourse Blog at discourseblog.com slash subscribe, you can hear new episodes a week before everyone else. Plus, get access to everything on the site. One more time, that's discourseblog.com slash subscribe. 
Bye.